you are listening to the Healthy Project Podcast with your host, Corey Diambolis. For more, go to healthyprojectpodcast.com. Hello, everybody. Thank you for listening to the Healthy Project Podcast. I am your host, Corey Dion Lewis. Uh, I have a great guest with me today um, talking about something that in my my uh, professional life, I'm really interested about and some things that I've actually kind of done a little bit. Uh, so I'm really excited to hear, you know, what's been going on uh, around food as medicine. I have the senior director of feeding change for the Milken Institute. Holly Freistadt with me today. Holly, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate it. It's great to be here today. Yeah. Well, before we get started, can you tell um, the listeners a little bit about yourself and what gets you up in the morning? The food. Food dominates my life. It always has. <laughs> uh, hence why I do what I do. Um, I have been obsessed and love food. On my entire career for 25 years, I have worked in what I call the food system. So in my early years, when I was coming out of college, I never even knew what the word policy meant. I got onto a farm and I grew food. That's what I knew. And then after that, I was like, well, you know, what about kids? What do they need to know? So I started teaching kids nutrition through gardening and cooking. And then I started to go, well, you know, I've done some traveling. I've seen some great places. Why can't we do this here? So I started to work on local food projects, you know, local farmers on a remote island in Washington state, and then started to realize, wait a minute, all this great work that nonprofits are doing, it's getting stuck, getting stuck with policy. And how do we kind of break open those doors and move policy? Um, So then I started to get more interested in the policy world. Like how do we open doors so that nonprofits and government and businesses can do the work that needs to get done? and that we can create opportunity. And so that kind of brought me to the city of Baltimore. And I'm a boomeranger, is I guess what I'm called. I was born and raised Baltimore, left Baltimore 15 years and came right back. <laughs> um, and so I worked for the city of Baltimore for 12 years uh, for the as the chief of food policy and planning and worked on all the food policy, food access, you know, at the time food deserts, they had turned into healthy food priority areas to food apartheid. COVID-19 mm. nutrition security response, um, working with resident food equity advisors, really have spent in depth in the city of Baltimore, hands-on experience, working with residents, government policy um, on looking at food access and food systems. And then most recently, I uh, came to the Milken Institute two years ago to really look transformation and food as medicine prescriptions. Awesome. Do you? How do you feel your, your frontline work how does that help you on the policy side of things? So it's absolutely essential. Um, so when you think about policy, there is never going to be a perfect policy. You craft a policy based off of on the front line, what is not working, what is working, create a policy, <laughs> then you mm-hmm. implement it and you go, wait a minute, we need to adjust it, right? And we got to fix it and keep modifying. So there's never this perfect policy. Um, but I think kind of bringing into the frontline experience of in Baltimore. Um, one of the big things that was a, been a huge focus and still is a huge focus is food access, right? We need to have food access, you know, look at equitable nutritious food. We want to see nutrition security. Uh, there's a lot of terminology everyone uses. So when we think about food insecurity, do people have enough food? Do they go to bed hungry? 
doesn't mean it's right. doesn't mean it's nutritious. Doesn't mean they're thriving in their life. Do they just have food? Are they hungry? Right? Nutrition security. Right. You the foods you need to be healthy, and that's important. And so that's a lot of the work we've been doing in the city of Baltimore. But since COVID, really, what we've been saying is even with, and this is kind of the epiphany of one of the reasons why I left the city. This is an ironic story is during um, COVID-19, we had a very significant budget. The, I mean, I was operating budgets in like millions and then suddenly I'm in like 50, 60 million dollars of budgets, right? Uh, oh. We're able to provide 18,000 produce boxes a week in 90 community sites for two consecutive years, increasing food and vegetable serving sizes um, by one per day for almost every resident especially in the healthy food priority area. So we saw this huge, you know, increase in fruits and vegetables, you know, through um, the COVID-19 response that we weren't able to mobilize necessarily prior. And there was this moment in time, and I, I think I probably tell this story too much, of this woman comes up to me and says, you know, I've been eating these produce boxes every week. They have been phenomenal in the community, you know, it's to a trusted resource. You know, the city was funding it, but it was through the arms and hands of the residents who live in the city, right? People they know you are. You know, not the, not Gov. Gov was just helping to have, have it happen, but it was through their neighbors. Right. And she came to me and said, you know, um, I've been really appreciating all these fruits and vegetables and I'm diabetic and I've been eating a banana every day. And it was this moment, like, we have to have insurance policy, health care, health plans a part of the food system solution. We cannot keep food access in one bucket and health care in the other. We have to integrate it. And so the work that we're doing at the Milken Institute is really looking at food as medicine prescription. Mm-hmm. Um, and do you want me to talk a little bit about what I mean by that? You, so that that's definitely, you know, one of one of my my questions. Can you talk, you know, a little bit, um, that kind of leads into one of them. Uh, can you talk about the different types of food prescriptions. I noticed from the manual there are a few types. So can you kind of talk about those a little bit? Yeah. So I'm going to start with food is medicine. Right now, when we hear the terminology food is medicine, to be honest, everyone's using it differently. You know, some are thinking it's food is medicine, food is health, it's a movement, it's a way to be, it's kind of like an activation call, right? Mm-hmm. When I use the word food is medicine prescription, it's laser focused, almost surgical, filling in the broken gap, right? The gap that we're trying to solve for is why is food not part of treatment, right? How do we solve for, just imagine if you're in, you go to the doctor, whoever you are, you go to the doctor and they say, what is your pharmacy? And they say, what's your grocery store? Like, right. That comes through, but you're specific food diagnostic, like for what you need and you may need prescriptions as well, right? It may not right. be all food. It could be both. And for most it's not this or that is and both. And so that it could be part of your treatment, not just um, mm-hmm. prevention. It needs to be both. And so we're using the word prescription because we're saying, yes, prevention is absolutely important. Yes, food insecurity is a social determinant of health. But right now, food is not a covered benefit uh, nationally. And it's surely not, you know, we're starting to see some movement on the, with different populations. But when I use the word food as medicine prescriptions, I'm going to give you examples. Mm-hmm. I think of it as a continuum of care. So it's food as medicine interventions. It can be produce prescriptions. 
So, and right now there is no standard definition and there's no standard protocol. So everything's going to vary, but produce prescriptions is say you are um, food insecure, right? And you have diabetes and the doctor says you need to eat more vegetables. And just imagine mm-hmm. if you had a prescription to go with it of $30 a week, every single week, and then three months, your prescription expires and you have to go back and get your A1C, right? Alpha diabetes mm-hmm. Because the whole point is to have this part of treatment, not just on um, SNAP, supplemental nutrition assistance. It's not just a food assistance, it's a treatment plan. So, produce prescriptions would be just produce, right? Medically tailored groceries, the oldest one in this nation is WIC, women, infant, children. That is a, you know, a medically tailored grocery, yeah. right? Uh, and they could be, and we're seeing a lot of different ones now. And then also medically tailored meals. And where you see medically tailored meals being extremely successful is with the chronically ill, those who are homebound. You know, and I would say, you know, we're seeing some movement with medically tailored meals, with um, Meals on Wheels, you know, and a lot of other nonprofits and also for-profit companies really making sure people could eat and so they don't go back to the hospital. So it's the very frail, usually. Right. I think about food as medicine prescriptions, and I would have to say I'm completely agnostic. And meaning, I don't care which one. I care that it meets the patient's need. Meaning that you might come out of the hospital and you need a food as medicine uh, medically tailored meal, and then you're getting strong, maybe you have a medically tailored grocery, and then it's produce prescription. Then you're really good on your own. You learn the skills. Mm-hmm. Now you're now on the benefits you need, and you're really good. Then you break your hip, you know, and you go back and forth. And so we really need to see it as this continuum of care. And so when I talk about this, it sounds kind of easy um, and it's extremely difficult. So the concept's easy to share, but the way that it rolls out and the barriers and challenges we have to face is why we just released our report and thinking through the granularity of these issues. We all understand the benefits of programs like Produce Prescription but why do you think it's been so slow to scale programs like this? So there's many reasons it's um, slow to scale. So when you think about it, there's a few a few key pieces. Is one, there's many different health conditions. And so one of the reasons we hear slow to scale, is there enough evidence? And I would say the evidence is building. Um, the evidence is building. We're seeing some great research coming out on medically tailored meals, produce prescriptions, And that has been one of the reasons why it's been slow to scale. Another one is I would say that pilots are phenomenal. However, they're very hard to aggregate, right? And so we have seen a million pilots across this country from grassroots organizations to retailers to health insurance plans. But then when you try to then add it all up, everyone's doing it differently. And it's a catch-22, to be honest, because when you think go back to equity, What do you do? You meet the community and the person at where they are. So these programs are really good at meeting community-based need. But if we're trying to move a federal policy agenda, we need to have, you know, the information we need to push the agenda needs to be aggregated. So I think that's another piece. But really, and I want to tell you a quick story of Baltimore and then get to um, another reason. So when I started in Baltimore City, I think it was in 2010, um, in that first few months, I started working on the farm bill. Um, and the main purpose of the farm bill, going back to your policy question, was at that time, you could not use SNAP benefits online. Um, and it was not correct. 
could not be done. So anyone who was on SNAP could order online. It does, didn't look like it, it does now, but you could still order online. But you could not do that. So we were able, you know, and it took a long time, but in the Farm Bill, I think 2014, it got passed to policy. It did not get implemented until COVID-19. We're talking 10 years. And I would say the reason here, and why I'm going to get to the story of slow to scale, was the policy actually came first in the Farm Bill, but the implementation of the technology um, and the data and the systems that were needed to bring it into implementation uh, took a tremendous amount of time. And they didn't, when we started it, once the policy passed. So when I think about food as medicine now, the policies are starting to change now. We're seeing it. We are seeing Medicaid waivers. And that means that you're having these demonstrations in different states across the country allowing for what's called nutrition supports, meaning you could use uh, medically tailored meals or produce prescriptions. Every state that's doing it is doing it slightly differently, but they're rolling it out. So we're starting to see Medicaid. Then in Medicare, for those who are 65 and older, we're starting to see food as medicine prescriptions through supplemental benefits for those who are chronically ill so that they are able to do that. But what we are, one of the key barriers that I see here, there's two um, that our report focuses on, is evidence is building great. Um, partnerships and collaboration are continuing to improve. Uh, you know, strong collaboration of nonprofits, the Food as Medicine Coalition, grassroots organizations. We're starting to see those coalition bases of all sectors coming together. Um, but this is kind of the devil's in the details piece is how, and looking back at the story on SNAP benefits, is how do we make sure the data technology is flowing? So when you think about food medicine, right, you have a patient or a person, um, and they get a prescription for, say, from a doctor or a healthcare worker, or maybe even a pharmacist someday, right? And that prescription needs to go to them. Then they need to be able to redeem those foods at their grocery store. Then that data needs to then be able to get reimbursed back into the healthcare system. And there's all these data transfers. So technology is a big barrier and it's not just one place. And in our report, and this is wonderful graphic, kind of showing all the different, I think there's 12 key stakeholders that are necessary for the transfer and implementation of food as medicine from just that simple prescription, right? One big barrier that our report talks about is Right now, it's just like every grocery store may have their own card that you can get your benefits, but it's only this amount of dollars at this store. Then maybe your Aetna, your insurance, or your Medicaid, but they're all like, it's a million different cards. <laughs> everyone's doing it, but everyone's doing it a little different with a million different cards. We don't have a universal card or commonality in language and definitions and standards. Um you know, and so we don't have payment systems in place. And so all these are getting built as we speak. And then the other part is, and I am I do love policy now. And I have to say, even in the perfect situation where we say we get everything we hope for, where Medicaid and Medicare and private insurance plans are covering, you know, food as medicine prescriptions for certain conditions, right? And incomes. Guess what? That alone will not be enough. That's not so that money may cover the food costs. Um, but what about the technology upgrades? What about uh, for HIPAA compliance? And what about all the other components that we need to be able to scale this? So, what we're another recommendation in this report is looking at um, really a food is medicine, you know, fund 
like where, how it can be blended financing. Like how do we take money from the federal government, state money, uh, other jurisdictions, grant money, and be able to have a fund that will be able to cover the full cost. Some of it can be reimbursed through policy. Some of it might be supplemented through grants, um, but that it allows for the full coverage of costs. Right. So for me, so correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like there are a lot of players and we need to simplify it, but there are all these players that are kind of making it harder to do. I don't think we need to simplify it. Oh, okay. It's kind of, I feel like when I think about food as medicine, I think about it 10 years ago, it was truly like a single lane highway. Like, you know, the idea was going around, maybe it was two lanes. Now we're in like a serious highway system related to food as medicine. Right? We have a lane and there's reasons why there are lanes and there's also dotted lines, right? So we could all work across the lanes. But there's a lane specifically right now in building the evidence, the scientific research. And that is absolutely needed. Right. We're seeing funding through the American Heart Association and Rockefeller and Tufts and many others. Right. And also USDA has a grant through Augusta. So we're seeing kind of like building this evidence base. Then you have the nonprofit grassroots coalition, the Food is Medicine Coalition and many others, you know, on the ground doing the work every single day. Right. Uh, and then the lane that we're really thinking about when we think about who the Milken Institute is, the work we do here, we sit at the intersection of finance and health. In my interpretation of that, we sit in the intersection of finance and food system or food is medicine. And so we're talk looking at what is not being addressed right now. And so we're focused in on how do you finance it and fund it? What does that look like? And what is the technology barriers and opportunities and solutions? And so that's the lane that we've been working on. In addition to, um, I lead the food is medicine task force for the Milken Institute. That includes 15 insurance companies and health systems and 10 retailers. Um, and then we have an advisory group that includes academics and nonprofits. And really the purpose here is a multi-stakeholder perspective from the payers to the providers, to the retailers, you know, to the consumer to understand all of the different aspects that need to be addressed. Right. I'm curious, Holly, what type of feedback are you getting from providers about giving these prescription or these produce prescription programs? What are you hearing from them? So this is what makes this conversation really unique. So when we think about a provider, right, normally you think of what? A doctor, right? And it may be a doctor and it could be a doctor, but it could also be a pharmacist. It could also be a social worker, a community health worker. Food can be a prescription and multiple different providers could be able to do that. Um, and I think that is a very interesting piece because we also know that healthcare and doctors sometimes are barriers for many or for some, and they may feel uncomfortable going to the doctor, but they go to the pharmacist all the time, or they may go to, um, you know, this, the grocery store that has a, a dietitian there. So there's, I would say what's interesting in this is it allows for multiple types of providers and healthcare to be able to provide prescriptions, or this is the goal. I'm setting the vision right here. I'm not saying it can't be right now. Um, and I think that it brings up some of these bigger questions, right? Like, what is the training? You know, is it about, do providers have the experience? Some do, and some just need to understand who to refer to. Here's a dietitian you need to go to. Here's a prescription or a dietitian who can give you a prescription. 
Um, and so I think it will really vary. Um, and I think that what's interesting is the main goal here is that it needs to be patient centric, right? And so I think one of the challenges we've seen is that when we're trying to solve it from a policy way or trying to get medically tailored meals, we're thinking about what the actual product is versus how do we make it really easy and accessible to the patient that they can get the foods they need easily, affordably, and accessibly. Right. I love that. And I think this is a great opportunity, especially in the community that I serve. Transportation is a huge issue, you know, but what's not much of a barrier is going to the church that's right down the street and they already trust the people that are there and it's within walking distances in their community. And I think empowering professional professionals to give food prescriptions in the community where they are already trusted is so powerful. So that brings me to, I was just, as you were talking, it brings me back to my Baltimore days of the Black Church Food Security Network, right? And then there's also uh, the Farm Alliance of, of Baltimore, um, where they're really looking at how do you bring, you know, food, uh, you know, and empower community to grow their own food or have access within their own community. And I think that's absolutely necessary. And I think one of the things that we have to figure out and I've also seen some health systems have farms um, and we're going to their farm and get their prescription there. Um, and so going back to sort of the report we released, the issue here is how do we make it accessible so that your church or your community organization or your big grocery store can actually redeem it um, and, I, and make it so that it is still HIPAA compliant if it's going through insurance. And so those are some of the complexities that we're starting to think through. Right. So, you know, my last question for you, and I, I want to be mindful of your time. How close are we to something like this being nationwide? You know, where are we at with that, in your opinion? All right. So I'm going to reframe that question. So I would say that um, we are seeing the movement state by state right now. So when they talk about like Medicaid, you know, a few years ago, we had, you know, one state with a Medicaid waiver to allow food as medicine prescriptions. Now we're up to like seven to 10, depending on which is pending and which they're approved. So we're starting state by state. We are growing in huge leaps and bounds. Right. Right. And then when you think about um, the White House conference and the strategy on the hunger, health and nutrition, the fact that food medicine was one of the pillars, pillar number two was on health and food and is huge. It's a big deal. The momentum is building, the evidence is building. As far as how long will it take, I will I am a policy person, so I'm never gonna give you a year, but here's my goal. It's <laughs> my goal. From the farm bill to online snap took twelve years. Eesh. Made up never happen again, right? Not <laughs> that. Um, and so I think that we're going to see it rolling out today, tomorrow, every, you know, state by state, age by age. Um, but what we really want to see as nationwide, I think, I think we have a challenging road, but we have the capacity to overcome it. Right. Well, Holly, thank you so much for being on the podcast with me today. For anybody listening, um, and they want to get a hold of you and, and learn more about what you're doing. Um, and just connect with you, uh, where can they find you? Milken Institute. So if you just go to your website and type in Milken Institute, uh, Feeding Change will pop right up. Awesome. 
Well, again, thank you so much for your time. And everyone, thank you for listening to the Healthy Project Podcast. I'll holla at you next time.